My name is Michael Guyett, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me there is Hilliard Macbeth. Hilliard, feel free to introduce you to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? What you've done throughout your career? And what are you doing currently, other than talking about when the bubble burst? So, uh, welcome. Yeah, thanks very much for inviting me on your show, Michael. And I've been following you for a while, so great to meet you in live spaces, I guess. Yeah, this is, I'm starting my 46th year as an investment advisor to families and individuals. And about eight years ago, I got concerned about the housing bubble that was forming in Canada. Uh, and so I decided to write a book about it. And um, I had written a book before in 1999 called Investment Traps and How to Avoid the Warning about the dot-com bubble, which was bothering me quite a bit. You know, so partly because I couldn't buy those stocks. And then, of course, uh, you get left way behind when uh, those particular stocks take off to the stratosphere and the, and the stuff that you own don't follow. And, of course, we got something similar today. But uh, so in about 2013, 14, a strange thing happened in Canada. We did not follow the U.S. The U.S. went through, a, as you know, a terrible... Uh, Deflation in housing from 2006 to 2012, the maximum downdraft was about 40%. The case Shiller says 37%, but depending on which city you're talking about, maybe 40% or, or more in Las Vegas. And the Canadian market did not, the Canadian housing market did not do that. There were a bunch of reasons, which I go through in the book. I won't go through them all today, but, but they managed to use the housing market to avoid the type of deep, severe recession that the U.S. went through. And of course, at the time that was thought, that was a very fortunate thing for Canada. But as it turns out, it's probably one of the worst things that happened because, of course, what happened was uh, people used debt, household debt and, and corporate debt to some extent as well to uh, pump up the housing bubble even further. So we've gotten to a point now uh, with, uh, with uh, having very little downdraft in 2009 and uh, then growth of about 7% per year uh, since then, or even greater in some years. Um, We've gotten to a point where housing is in a huge bubble. Uh, household debt, of course, is also in a huge bubble because you can't have a huge housing bubble without very high household debt. And um, and now, of course, it, with interest rates having gone up, mortgage rates are starting to bite. And uh, so here we are. We're at the point. Now, I thought we would have, you know, I, I, I get accused of being wrong, but I like to say I was early. I wasn't wrong. So, but it's been a long eight years watching this uh, go through several stages. Uh, we had several opportunities to to correct the housing bubble at a, at a smaller scale. It still would have been a bubble, but 2017, there was a major drop. It's kind of interesting, perhaps, to uh, your listeners. In 2017, one of the major kind of alt lenders in Canada called Home Capital was going under, and Warren Buffett Road to the rescue with a huge uh, cash exchange, which has still got me shaking my head. Uh, that was that would have been uh, nice deflation. They got caught with mortgage brokers had been basically, you know, encouraging people to lie in the applications for their mortgages, and so the there's not a bank, so it didn't have access to the backing of the government that banks have. So it was going down for the count, and then Warren Buffett wrote to the rescue, so that gave it another leg. Then 2020 U.S. COVID. We again had a chance to deflate the bubble, but the Canadian government went way further than any other government in the developed world in terms of injecting cash into the economy. And a lot of people that received the cash, their COVID bucks, they use it to buy more houses. So that they get another leg in the bubble and we pushed it even higher. So, so now we're at uh, three years later and almost four years later, I guess. 
And we'll see if this is the time that the housing bubble actually does burst. So there's a lot of people that obviously don't want it to burst, but our, my view is it has to, because you know, housing house prices have gone way beyond the increase in wages, way beyond the increase in inflation. It's been, you know, it's been nothing like way beyond the increase in GDP. So people can't afford their housing that they've borrowed big bucks to, to live in. And uh, that leaves them in a very precarious position with interest rates going up. You know, it's kind of ironic. We've got this thing in Canada. The banks just reported that, well, one of the things to point out is we have a different situation in Canada. We only have really five big banks and actually four of them are bigger than the fifth one by quite a bit. So, and they just reported their results and they've been, three of the, three of them have been promoting something called a variable rate for mortgages. Some people will remember the scandal in subprime mortgages in 2006, 2007, but there was also a, a, a low rate, uh, adjustable rate mortgage where you got a low teaser rate for two years and then it jumped to the high rate and that caused a lot of people to to default as soon as the rate jumped. Well, we got something very similar. We, in order to help people get into these homes in the last few years, because it had gotten so stretched, a lot of people opted for variable rate mortgages, which are supposed to, uh, every month, they're supposed to adjust to the higher rate. Of course, people couldn't handle that. So they, uh, depending on the rules, seem to vary between uh, the banks, but any of the rules, you either had to go right to market rates right away, or you could keep making the monthly payment and not be adjusted to the market rate. So we've got this really weird situation where there's a number of, and it's a significant percentage, something like 20, 25% of the people with mortgages are now not paying anything towards their, towards the principal. They're not even actually covering all the interest on their mortgages. So they're underwater on the monthly payments. And if they were all forced to go to their, what the real monthly payment should be at this point, there would be a, a, a real credit card chain Canada. So we're sort of kind of at that point now where we'll see uh, a lot of people are hoping to race to come down, uh, but I don't think that'll rescue the situation. Housing prices have already, I didn't mention housing prices. So housing prices went up basically 7% per year, uh, maybe even a little bit more for the last 20 years in Canada. And that means in uh, big centers like Toronto and Vancouver, prices are four and a half to five and a half times higher than they were in, in uh, 2000. So so they started to come down. The, of course, the people that put out the house price indexes, the U.S. is lucky. It's got something called the Case-Shiller Index, which is done by an academic. But in Canada, the only people that issue a house price index is are basically very closely related to the real estate industry. So there's some things happening with the, one, the main index that most people follow is the Canadian Real Estate Association Index. And they exclude expensive homes now from <laughs> as the market started to as prices started to drop, they decided, like, sort of out of the blue, to just say, well, we won't count expensive homes. We'll only count moderately priced homes. <laughs> of course, when the bur- bubble's bursting, the larger homes tend to drop by a bigger percentage, and that would have made the index look worse. So I guess they wanted to avoid that. So, and uh, so we, we're at that point now where house prices have been going down a little bit for a number of months, maybe even a year or two. But there's, uh, at least officially, there's no massive thing like 35 or 40 percent it's in the five to ten percent range depending on which city you look at and and also which parts of the city you know some parts of the city where there's a lot of expensive i think they call them mcmansions maybe in the u.s and, and canada both you know prices are down maybe 20 percent. but we're just at the very beginning stages of this much needed adjustment
we'll call it. There's a few different things I want to want to get into to educate myself and the audience. The the thing I've 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 constantly heard from others that I've interviewed and had spaces with is this idea that it's a reset of the mortgage as a feature in Canada, which makes it so troublesome. Whereas in the U.S., you have this lock-in effect of the 30-year term. In Canada, there is that sort of natural reset that happens, I think, every five years. I may be off on that. But how? what are the safety nets that are currently in the financial system in Canada for those home borrowers who you know, are really going to be underwater if home prices keep dropping relative to what they're paying. Yeah, so there aren't really any safety nets for the home buyer. So there's a, there's a couple of really unique things to Canada. You mentioned already one of them, which is the five-year reset, which is which is the normal. Every five years, you have to sort of renegotiate your payments based on the, the interest rate at the time of the maturity of the five years from your start. So but with the popularity of these variable rate mortgages, they were issuing variable rate mortgages at one and a half, two percent when the five year rate was three or four or five percent. So people obviously opted for the one and a half, two year and they were encouraged to do that by the realtor and by the banker. And believe it or not, the Bank of Canada governor is sort of like the equivalent of the chair of the Federal Reserve actually made a statement a couple of years ago saying that rates are going to stay lower for longer. He was definitive. His rates are going to stay low for a very long time just before inflation took off. So, you know, you can't really blame these people for opting for the variable rate, but that's a recent feature. So the housing market for a long time just ticked along with these five-year renewals. And a lot of people, you could take a locked-in rate or a variable rate. Most people in the past used to opt for the locked-in rate. But so... That's one feature that's different. The other one that's kind of uh, special is the is mortgage insurance. So there's three mortgage insurance companies in Canada. The CMHC is a government-owned one, and then there's two private sector ones. Uh, and they don't insure the house owner. There's, there's no protection for the house owner, although, the, believe it or not, the actual the house buyer buy, pays the insurance premium, but the, it's protection for the lender. So the idea is no sane bank would lend money to these people because they can't obviously can't afford this mortgage that we're giving them. But the government steps in and says, okay, we'll provide insurance so that the, the banker doesn't lose any money if the person defaults on the mortgage. And those mortgage insurance premiums are pretty high. And so when you step in, you can have as little as 5% down payment for the mortgage, uh, for the house purchase. And then with the uh, fees for the insurance premium, you actually are in negative equity rates from day one. And now that was a significant part of the of the housing bubble a few years ago. And it has a feature that allows the banks to, to lend a lot more money. Because I don't know how deep you want to get into this, but it's really quite fascinating. In the U.S., as you mentioned, the 30-year term really is a great feature for the home buyer, but it's very difficult for the financial markets. As you can imagine, who wants to take the risk of we saw three banks in March of this year fail because they had bought long-term papers. So it would be very difficult to, to for the banks to keep that on their balance sheet. So what they do in the U.S. is they sell it to Fannie and Freddie. And of course, that led to huge problems in 2008, 2009. But so that, that market is artificially rigged because of the government involvement through Fannie and Fred, Freddie. In Canada, it's different, but it has the same end result, which is banks are much more active in the housing market than they would be because they have the mortgage insurance. And uh, so what happens with the mortgage insurance is you pay a one-time premium at the time of the purchase. It's quite a significant number of, I, I forget exactly, but it's a, a three or four or 5%. So 
be quite a large amount of money, but it's a one-time payment. So you, once you pay it, it's done and you don't have to pay it again. And uh, basically, as long as you keep your your payments up, nobody asks you any questions that you're you know, underwater on your mortgage by 5 or 10%, which inevitably you will be for a while. And then if you default, now there are a few defaults. There haven't been many defaults in Canada. You know, it's housing prices rising at 7% per year for 20 years. You have to really screw up to default on your mortgage. But there are some defaults, you know, divorces and stuff like that. So the, the bank sells the home. And if there's a, if there's a, def, if there's a deficit after they sell the home, they make a claim to the, the mortgage insurance company and they get paid. So for that reason, they're happy to keep these mortgages on their balance sheet. And there's another thing that happens, which is really interesting. And that is that they take, they have to take very little uh, capital attribution for those mortgages that they hold on their balance sheet. So uh, because it's government insured, they can't lose any money. So the capital allocation is extremely low. So you've got banks in Canada, the largest banks in Canada who have a return on equity on their Canadian lending division, which is made up of a lot of mortgages held on the balance sheet uh, that are in the 30% plus range. And uh, the overall return on equity for Canadian banks is has been in the 15 to 18% range for many years, which quite a bit higher than a bank like Wells Fargo or some of the other ones that are sort of comparable to Canadian banks. So, And it's primarily because of this low capital weighting on these uh, mortgages that are insured. And there's also fairly low capital weighting on the uninsured mortgages, which are required a 20% down payment. So if you give a 20% down payment, then you don't have to pay the mortgage insurance premium and the bank keeps those ones on their balance sheet as well. So they don't have a fanny or shreddy to buy their mortgages from them. They tend to, there is a small mortgage-backed security business in Canada, but generally the banks tend to keep the mortgages on their balance sheet. So so for most of them, it's their biggest business. So household finance is their biggest, they call it retail lending, and it's their biggest business at this time. So that it's a very big thing, this housing bubble, if it bursts because it will affect the Canadian banks quite severely, even with the insurance. Now, lately, what's happened is the banks have been selling off the, the other, the, the, there's two things happening. The number of insured mortgages is less and less, and I think that's because it's never been explained, but I'm, so this is just a guess, but I'm guessing that the reason that the number of insured mortgages is, is a much smaller percentage than it had been in the past is that the banks don't have any flexibility on the qualification rules for insured mortgages. But if you have a 20% down payment, the bank can be, you know, could look at your situation and say, okay, well, you maybe don't meet the qualifications on on strictly on the income, but you can do make it on other ways. So it's it's a bit of a murky thing. But so the percentage of uninsured mortgages on the balance sheets of Canadian banks has gone up dramatically in the last little while. But again, there are computer models which determined the risk-weighted, um, you know, the Basel III reproach with risk-weighted bank um, formulas, uh, the banks are allowed to use their own com- internal c- computer models if they're, if they're big enough banks. And the model tells them that there, there's been no defaults on mortgages. So therefore they can, the risk weight can be quite low. So here we are. We're facing the biggest housing bubble probably in the world, maybe China, maybe Australia, uh, maybe Korea, somewhere. I don't know. Biggest household debt bubble in the world. And the banks have been have very little protection in terms of capital buffers. 
if you know their house prices are going to have to fall more than 20% for the banks to get into trouble, obviously. But if prices do fall in the 30, 40% like they did in the US, then there's going to be some pain felt at the level of the banks, which will be a shock to Canadians because the banks in Canada, and I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the general impression in the US and elsewhere is that the Canadian banks are very solid and very conservative in their lending practices. So a lot of the stuff that I've just gone through is probably going to be a bit surprising to a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to assume you don't have like, the ninja loan aspect from the states in you know, 2000, in the lead up to 2008, right? The, the no income, no jobs, no assets type of thing, right? So that well, yeah. help buffer things. Well, the thing that's happened is, of course, the mortgage brokerage business is, there's probably some mortgage brokers listening to this, so I have to be careful. But I'm sure 99% of the mortgage brokers are honest and straightforward and would never alter an application to to get approval for a mortgage. But there, there are definitely stories, anecdotal stories of that story I related in 2017 with Home Capital was all about situations where people were, were turning in false or applications with false information on them. So, and there were no, there was a bit of a slap of the wrist at the time, but nobody really got hurt on that. So obviously, uh, it would, you know, that I'm sure it's still around. The banks like to use mortgage brokers because I think it probably absolves them of some of the responsibility if something does go wrong. And also they are particularly well set up to, to handle mortgages. I don't think so in terms of that detail. So they would prefer to have mortgage brokers come in and do the application for them. And so, yeah, that, there probably is some of that. But, and you know, the thing that, that relates to what you just said probably quite directly is. There's a saying in Canada that says, well, we have no subprime mortgages the way the U.S. had. So when I first, when the book first came out in 2015, and there's a second edition in 2018, and I'd encourage you if people do buy the book to get the 2018 edition. When the first came out, though, in 2015, I did a lot of interviews with Canadian media. And I got the pushback all the time and say, well, we don't have any of that subprime mortgage the way the U.S. had. So therefore, you know, you're wrong. You can't, you Canadian housing bubble can't ever burst because we don't have any subprime mortgages. Well, we do have subprime mortgages. They just, they're just insured by that insurance scheme that I mentioned. And so, and then of course, there's always some, some issues with, with money laundering and that sort of thing. And also with fraudulent applications, there's no mechanism in Canada for any, anybody to pursue people that would lie on their mortgage application. And so there's, you know, with the housing prices going up so rapidly every year, there's a lot of incentive for people to, let's say, exaggerate a little bit on their situation. Let's talk about the the health of the banks and maybe which you think might be more concerning. So, you know, I'm looking at just TD Ameritrade. Okay, it looks like kind of sideways, right, with TD Bank, not TD Ameritrade. But the point is, you know, it doesn't look like the stock prices are acting that conservative. If anything, they're just kind of correlating to the way U.S. financials have been acting, right, largely sideways. What would be sort of a a moment where you'd say, okay, now is the time where you'd want to start to worry and really panic when you look at the stock prices themselves of the banking system? We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. 
Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. Well, you know, like banks, it's different in the sense that, as I mentioned, um, the concentration in lending to households, the retail lending is much greater in Canada than it is in any of the U.S. They certainly, the money center banks are got, you know, nothing. I think Goldman Sachs tried to get into it, but I think they're backing out of it now. But so it'd be like something like Wells Fargo probably. But in Canada, the concentration is much greater on lending to the household. And uh, and it's been very stable. Like we've said, you know, the mortgages very low default rates. So the Canadian banks have very low provisions for credit losses because they're not lending. So you have to get into the to this risk-weighting, light-touch regulation situation, which I had never looked into prior to writing these books. But, but you know, starting in the early 80s with Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, there's a regulatory regime that was put into place that said, you know, the banks are the best judge of how much risk they're taking on. And, and the banks have sophisticated computer models, which they put in GDP and projected host price, most usually increases, not declines, and, and different things like that. And they come up with a number and say, okay, this, this is what we have to have for our provision for credit losses. And as you know, they have to do on performing loans and then on non-performing loans and impaired loans. So, so that all looks pretty good. So the provisions are quite low in relation to... Now, if the bank were on this call, they would argue and say, oh, no, we've increased our provisions a lot. But if you go back, all the charts sort of stop in 2010, going back, you know, they go back 13 years, but they don't go back. So you could see that the credit events, the true credit event, and even that for Canada in 2008, 2009 was not a true credit event because we managed to escape through it uh, with the help of the of tremendous boosts to the housing market that the government helped with as well. So you really have to go back to the 1990s and nobody goes back that far. So so uh, provisions have been in the past quite a bit higher than they are today. But for the recent past, they're fairly adequate. And then the equity levels, the best, all these crises that we've had over the last 20 years have shown that a lot of the other kind of uh, sort of capital measures that, uh, you know, total loss absorbing capital and, you know, all these different types of things really don't work very well in a crisis. So the only thing that really works very well is the common equity tier one capital. And the Canadian banks are relatively high in that regard. They're at the, so the minimum requirement under Basel is, you know, there's buffers and all that, but it's like, say, let's say 8% common equity tier one. So that's leverage of 12 and a half times. And the Canadian banks are up around 12, 13, 14. I think TDs are around 14%. So that's leverage of seven times. So it's much lower leverage than, than the minimum. But Nobody wants to be close to the minimum. Nobody really wants to be that, you know, 9.5% people, the regulators would actually start to make some grumpy noises and stuff. So you want to keep above 10, 11, 12, just to be safe. But but we have to go back to something I said a few minutes ago, which is the capital allocation with regarding mortgages is extremely low. So you're talking about common equity tier one capital based on not on total assets, but on risk-weighted assets. So when you do the risk-weighted assets, of course, the risk weight of mortgages is very low. So therefore, the TDE and the Royal, those are the two biggest ones, look like they've got really large amounts of capital, larger than some of the U.S. banks. But uh, of course, the, the risk-weighting on this very large amount of mortgages, which the, Canadian, the U.S. banks wouldn't have on their balance sheet, they normally would sell them off. The fact that the risk-weighting is so low on these things Look, they makes the capital look adequate as long as the housing market doesn't get in trouble 
it's worked. And uh, the housing market hasn't gotten into trouble. It's, it's had little minor blips. So the, the only way that this becomes an issue is if the housing market drops, say, more than 20, 25% in price. But that's what I'm predicting in, in the housing bubble bursting thesis. And then the banks will have to, have to do something. Now, what they have to do is they have to rebuild their capital. So unlike all of the other banks in the world, pretty much, Canadian banks were not required to suspend their dividends during the crisis in 2008, 2009. They, in fact, they just, all they do is stop increasing their dividends. So, and of course, the banks want to keep pumping the dividends up because they don't want to accumulate capital because that makes their ROE look uh, low. So they've been able, so that, that would be the first sign to get back to your question is more specific answer to your question. You'd, you'd watch for two things in Canada. You would be the house prices are dropping more than 20%. And as I mentioned, there's a problem with the index. So you have to maybe do a little more research to find out what the house price drop really is. And, and the second thing would be if the Canadian banks ever suspended their dividends. Now, that's going to be a very big event because that has not happened. The Canadian banks go back all the way to the 1830s, the 1840s, and they've continuously paid their dividends every year since then. So for them to suspend their dividend would be a very big thing. And I don't think they'd ever do it unless the regulator demanded that they do it. Just to reset the room the remaining 20 minutes here, everybody please make sure you follow Cleared here on X. If any of you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left mic request button. And as always, this will be a podcast under Lelag Live on Apple, YouTube, and Spotify. I want to take this to the risk of contagion because that's always, you know, the boogeyman, right, that's out there. Obviously, we're talking from a Canadian perspective, but yeah, U.S. has its own issues as far as you know, potential for housing to really break substantially. I happen to be very bearish. Also, I would argue like you early, not necessarily wrong. But let's say that worst case scenario plays out for Canada and the banking system. Do you think it would largely be isolated to within Canada or, you know, what are the knock-on effects globally? Yeah, I don't know what the knock-on effects for Canada would, from Canada to the world would be. Certainly the Canadian dollar has been a little bit weak lately. You know, it's got down to 73, 72. It was going to break the 70 cent barrier against the US dollar at that event in 2017 before Warren Buffett came in and rescued Dope Capital, if you can believe it or not. But, but that didn't, I don't think the contagion would be that great. The, the biggest connection between the Canada and the US is the export of, of uh, crude oil. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but the crude oil, uh, of course, the biggest oil producer in the world is the US. Then people still think it's Saudi Arabia and stuff, but it's not. It's the US is by far the biggest oil producer in the world. And the US uses about 18, 19 million barrels a day. And the, the US produces about 13. So there's a gap of about five. And the Canadians export about four, four and a half million barrels a day to the US, from mostly from the, where I live, which is Alberta. So they, there's very little importing of oil from any other country in the world other than Canada. So that's the biggest connection. I don't see that as being connected to the housing bubble bursting in Canada in any way, other than the perhaps the adjustment in the Canadian dollar would make uh, our our oil exports even cheaper. Maybe you know the the I, but our oil is fairly expensive because it comes from oil sands, which are difficult to, and then the transport costs are much higher than taking shale oil out of Texas. So that's one connection. But the other contagion, though, there there is some, maybe not the U.S. as much, but there is some potential with China. So China is going through, a, a, as you probably have noticed, they, there's been a, a huge bubble in China, similar to Canada, 
It's different in a lot of ways, but it's similar in the sense of the concentration of real estate speculation and real estate investment, and also the the very large property developers in China are now in deep trouble. So China Evergrande, two and a half years ago, got in trouble. And and then the biggest one, which is about four times larger than China Evergrande, is called Country Garden. It is now in trouble and can't pay its debts. So there's a huge amount of speculation going on as to what the Chinese government's going to do. But a lot of the money that comes from China that's trying to escape maybe something, some problem in China that people want to diversify their money out of China was coming to Canada and the West Coast of the U.S. The three big cities are Seattle, San Francisco, and Los Angeles in the U.S. So Vancouver, big city in Canada, and then the three in the U.S. were getting an awful lot of money from. So that could dry up, but that isn't necessarily a, a direct contagion onto the financial markets from Canada to the world. The Canadian banks are, you know, maybe trying to diversify into the U.S. by buying there's a bank, a Royal Bank bought City National. Very interesting thing. You mentioned TD. TD tried to buy Horizon. I think it's called Horizon. And they were basically denied by the regulator from that purchase. And that was kind of really kind of a bit of a surprise. And But most of the purchases that the Canadian banks have made in the U.S. have been no, nowhere near as profitable as this, this money-making machine that I just, just described. With the Canadian housing and mortgage market, I mean, the, the return on equities are much lower. The the problems with regulators are much worse. They're like the the whole thing is, it's just that the Canadian banks, it's a lot more, a lot sexier for them to be a player in the U.S. than it is in the, the you know market. But but you know the other thing that we haven't talked about yet is the are we in a bull market or are we in a bear market in terms of the stock market? And certainly the 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 debt that we've talked about is a problem. It's not as big a problem in the U.S. because the U.S. went through in in the in that in the household debt. Uh, U.S. went through a major change in 2006 2012 when the housing market uh, collapsed. Then, but uh, certainly the commercial real estate market in the U.S. is a big problem, and there's a lot of debt, bank debt attached to that. We have that in Canada as well, and if there was any connection, it's more likely to be through that mechanism and. You know, my my view is this is a very unusual cycle, but we're still at a bear market. We we have these the natives of seven that all of your listeners are very familiar with, I'm sure. I love that cartoon I saw of the we can't save the bulls from the bear much longer. <laughs> but the, anyway, the the market is in very difficult situations to 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 call this a new bull market. You'd have to say in October twenty twenty, that was the start of a new bull market. And certainly the market's up since then from then till July, anyway, of 2023. But if you call it a bear market, as it's starting from, say, December 2021, then this is a very odd bear market rally. I'm sure you must be. No, no, I'm with you. And I know you're approaching for the standpoint of being a candidate, but like, I've been very, I have a very specific thesis, right? And I'm sure like, like me, you're now tagged as a perma bear or a doomer, could you say? but my thesis relates to the the fact that we are still technically in the drawdown. And because we're still technically in the drawdown for the S&P, we don't know if the drawdown is over. And if the drawdown is not over for the S&P, the implication would be you break the October low. And maybe as that's happening this time around, treasuries, which look like they failed as the counter asset throughout the drawdown for equities, actually do what they're doing now, which is rally as stock go down. Right. So, so for me, it's a very 
I'm with you. Like, there's so many things that are screaming that we are still in a bear market. Everyone is talking about now the Fed likely cutting rates, I think, as early as March. It's like if they're cutting rates as early as March, why would they do that? Because you're probably starting a bear market. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. That's the thing that drives me crazy that people that are predicting four rate cuts, I've seen that now for 2024, they don't realize that what they're saying is just going to be a really severe recession because that's the only, the, you know, the Federal Reserve and the Bank Canada, the Bank of England, they follow the market. They don't lead the market. So if Thank there's four rate cuts. all fall. Thank you. I'm so crazy. It drives me crazy. Well, uh, one of the things that happened to me when I wrote this book about the housing bubble is I'm I met all these economists and that was my training before I got, became a stockbroker was as an economist. And so I, I met all these, and I, I, it's unbelievable. Like we all sit here and say, what's the, you know, what's the Federal Reserve going to do and all that? They're following, they followed on the way up. The, the inflation rate went up before they raised rates and now they're, they're going to follow on the way down. So if they were, if they actually cut rates four times from these interest rate levels are not particularly high. They're just sort of where they were before the ridiculous part started. If they cut from here, the only way they would do that would be if there was some very severe recession, which is quite light, is quite possible. I mean, I don't think that, you know, the soft landings, there's been 11 recessions since 1945. And I don't arguably, you could argue one or two of them maybe were soft landings, but where you've got a real recession, you've got a stock market decline, usually of 40 or 50%. You've got interest rates coming down. But the big thing is valuations. So the stock market valuations, bull markets do not start from the kind of valuations that we have in the stock market, especially, you know, even if you remove the base with seven from the S&P 500, the stock market valuations are still extremely high. And so I don't know what combination of factors would allow this to be a new bull market before we go through that process of adjusting the values down to where where things get cheap. And I like the, the you know, the case Schiller index for the stock market, or sorry, I guess it's the, that's the, the Schiller index anyway. The CAPE, and it's really clunky and nobody likes it anymore. It's, you know, it's 10 year average. So it's all this stuff. It's like in the 1929 and 1999, 2000 range and it has been for quite a while. So, so it has come down, you know, it's sort of in the 30 level. I haven't checked it like today, but roughly the last few months it's been, it's probably down a little bit below that now because we've had, you know, since July prices have come down a little bit, but it tends to move slowly. But the long term average is 50. And a really cheap market would be 10. So you'd have to have, have a, you know, to get a really cheap market, you'd have to have quite a big sell-off in the stock market. But you could have NVIDIA and a few stocks like that go down. I like to remind people that, and I, you know, I, I don't know, a lot of people went through the 2000, 2002 bear market, but Amazon was 64 at the peak and it bottomed to six. So that's a 90% drop. So it was a good company. Like, you know, the Amazon turned out to be worth thousands of dollars per share. And so... Right, well, so, go back, which goes back to my point that it's the path, right, with which it plays out. And plenty of great companies have had, you know, 50% type of and more declines. But I want to go to, I want to take this to, to your role as an investment advisor, financial advisor, right? As I think you mentioned at the start there. 
you know, the, you and I can be bearish from here until tomorrow, but we have to manage the path, right? I always go back to, you can be bullish and bearish at the same time, just depending on time frame. So if you're managing other people's assets and you've got this viewpoints, what do you do? Well, we're very, right now we're very conservative with our client assets. You know, we've got like normal equity, you know, we'd always, most clients would always have some fixed income and some equities, you know, the typical 60-40 model, 70-30, if somebody wants to be aggressive, 80-20. And we're down in the, you know, 30 to 40% equity range for pretty much all of our clients. And some of them have gone even further, not on our advice, but they've listened to what we're saying. They said, well, let's go to... Let's have no equities, right? Which I don't, I, don't, I never recommend that. But, but so you can protect yourself that way. And the other thing you could do is protect yourself by the type of stocks that you buy, right? So you've got in that 30 or 40% equities, you could have uh, the different, so you don't have to buy the, the, all of the magnificent seven and take all of that risk. You can buy much cheaper stocks. Although the US market generally is very difficult right now to find super cheap markets. And also I'd, I'd mention that. If the stock market goes through a, a real bear market, which would be, you know, be another 20, 30% from here, it tends to take down all the stocks. It doesn't, you can't hide. There's no place to hide when in a, in a real severe bear market, a severe recession kind of scenarios. So you, you want to be careful about that, but that's what we do. And we also, we kept our fixed income relatively short. So we didn't get hit as badly, but we still got hit a little bit on the fixed income side. And so we're just trying to muddle through. And have lots and lots of short-term fixed income instruments that we'll use to buy stocks list when, when the time is right. And the biggest problem would be, well, the, having the patience to wait for it. And then secondly, you know, timing it. Because 2009 was very difficult to time. You know, you had Lehman Brothers in September. The market didn't bottom until March, right? So the following year. So that was, you know, it sounds like nothing now. It's only six months. But when you're going through it, that's a very difficult stretch of time. So... And similarly, it was 2000 to 2002. Well, that was relatively, you know, compact. It was only two years. This one's very odd because it's already, so December, now we're coming up to the two-year anniversary of this bear market. So it's going to be a long bear market in relation to compared to other bear markets. It's going to be, unless it ends tomorrow, which I guess it could if the market dropped 30% in one week or something, it's going to turn out to be one of the longer bear markets we've ever had. And certainly the bear market rally from October to July was an extremely long bear market rally. But, but that's where we are. What, you know, what can you do? You, you have to, you have to live with what you can. You can wish it was different, but you have to accept that's the way it is and just try and get through it. Yeah. And I don't know what it is. It, it seems like people, maybe it's just denial. It seems as if people can't imagine that we may already be in a lost decade. Right. And it's not a very comfortable feeling. But first of all, it's happened many times in the history of the U.S. markets. It's already happened last decade plus when it comes to emerging markets, not India, but, you know, most other emerging markets. I mean, for God's sakes, the Hang Seng Index is at 2008 levels, right? Yeah. So, so, and Brazil hasn't done anything. And bonds have basically gone through effectively a lost decade after inflation. So the point is, I, I don't know why it's such a controversial concept to think that, yeah, this could just be a difficult, prolonged, frustrating period where nobody really makes much money. Inflation grinds away at everybody, not just in the U.S., but in Canada and all over the world. And the most frustrating thing will be just waiting for that cycle to change, but we'll be a lot older. Yeah, and I think it's important to like to think, you know, like like 1929, just for example, they, people say, well, the market didn't recover 
until 1945, or I forget what the exact date was, sometime after the Second World War, the 1929 peak was re- reached. But, but the reality is that at the bottom in 1932, now, most people, A, had no money to buy the stock market, and B, were really afraid to buy the stock market. But there was a tremendous rally in the stock market from 1932 to 1937. And uh, so there's lots of stuff you can do during a decade of difficult times in the market. I think what we're saying here is that people just have not grown up with the idea of difficult times. And, and, you know, like the Japanese, their market peaked in 1989. And I don't even know if, I guess it's bottom now, but that's a long time, 25, 30 years kind of thing. So, and so that's why I, that's why I like to recommend to people that they stay involved in the market by buying stocks at all times, not getting out of the market and then back into the market, but stay in the market, just adjusting your exposure because you want to stay in touch with the market. Then, you know, if the 1932 situation comes along, you want to get really aggressive at that point. And, uh, you know, it didn't even matter. There was a second bear market in 1937 that was pretty bad, but uh, it didn't matter if you didn't, if you didn't sell in 1937 before, because you were skated back on side fairly quickly after the second world war started. And, the market went on, went on its very way. So, so it's, it's, yeah, I think people, I mean, I've had people, I'm sure you've had this too, where people just say, well, I just buy the ETF for the S&P 500. And I'm just, you know, like they, people have become convinced that this is just that simple. You don't have to do anything more than that. I'm thinking, no, it's more complicated than that. It's like, you gotta, you gotta think about bull markets and bear markets and you gotta decide which sector in the market to be in. You got to avoid, you know, stocks that are in a bubble and property markets that are in a bubble. You got to do all these difficult things. And and that means you're going to be wrong sometimes too for a while. Wrong for a while, not wrong permanently, but wrong for a while before you're right. And that's why I like, I don't know if you've ever followed some of the work of Grantham, Jeremy Grantham, but he, he describes it really well. And he says, you're going to look like an idiot for a number of years before you're right. And that's why people don't want to, they don't want to do it. I mean, they, like people generally, humans are basically programmed genetically to to follow the crowd. It's the safest thing to do. And if the crowd is buying the Magnificent Seven, the humans are going to follow the crowd. They're you know they're not going to thank you for pointing out to them that's that they're wrong to do that, right? They're they're not going to like that issue. That's why you get these labels. Yeah, and you know you and I both know Grantham lost to what a third or more of his assets during the tech bubble run up. Right with GMO. I mean, the reality is the, there's. He went from no. He went from a hundred billion in 1998 to something like 30 billion by Allison. I mean, it was punished for being right. I mean, it's totally right. And now he went back up to a hundred billion. Uh, you know, and then he did the same thing again in 2006. He was. I was. I was at a conference in New York. He was the lead speaker. And I think it was, I, oh, I don't know. I don't remember the exact date. It was 2003 or 2004. So again, he was two or three years early and he was predicting the global financial crisis at the time. Uh, but he's calling this one, he's calling, he's predicting this time that this is the really big one. He said, this has only happened a couple of times, three times maybe. Or it's the 1929 crash, the Japanese one mentioned in 1989 and the dot-com bubble in 1999, 2000. So this will be the fourth one. And again, he's been wrong because he, you know, he started talking about this about three years ago. And with this bear market rally, he's, you know, for a while people were listening to him when from December, 2021 
to October 2022. We got lots of interviews and then this bear market rallies, nobody wants to listen to him again, but, but it's just, this is an unusual feature, but it doesn't make his, doesn't make his basic thesis wrong. I don't think. Goes back to a fine line between being early and wrong in this business. It's, I've lived this many times beyond just even the last, you know, two years. It's hard dealing with a crowd that just wants to shout in terms of expressing their belief based on recency bias as opposed to deeper analysis. Yeah. So the junk bond spread, I think it gets to, in the bad times, it gets to like a 10% spread over treasuries, right? So if treasuries are five or four, then the junk bond yield has to be 14 or something like that. Is that roughly which, what? Yeah, which would be a phenomenal buy. I don't know why people are thinking yeah. at this stuff. It's like, you know, you actually want to have a credit event because then what's going to happen whenever that happens is there's going to be an overreaction on illiquid junk death, right? And then, yeah, those yields will be incredibly attractive. That'll be a hell of a buy, right, for income generation. But it's just hard for people to to intellectualize that, I think, when you know, all they see is NVIDIA and all they see is AI and all they see is their portfolio, which after inflation is still way below the 2021. Yeah. And the other thing, too, I think is, you know, 80% of the money in the market now is like institutional and hedge funds, right? So what the average person thinks is really like, and a lot of those institutional buyers of stocks, they have a, they have a, a legislated mandate that they have to buy stocks, right? That they, and they're not going to, they're not going to, risk their job by making some wild claim like like the housing bubble is going to burst or they're not going to do that. So they they go with the flow, right? And so that money gets, as Keynes, John Maynard Keynes wrote about it, and also Grantham has mentioned, they're more concerned about career risk than they are about being right in the market, right? So they, they basically will just do what it's likely to, to allow them to keep their job rather than make some big, big uh, statement about the market and take a big bet. And that's like 80% of the money in the market. So it would have to be, would have to be the investment committee of the pension plan that would have to get bearish on stocks to cause them to stop pretty. And that'll happen, but it only happens, you know, during one of those bear markets that come along the real bear market, right? Where the, the committee finally meets, the committee meets and then it meets again. And then it maybe fires the money manager and then hires a new money manager and goes through all these stages. And then they say, well, you know, we said 60-40, but we really only want 20% of our stocks and money in stocks now. And uh, that that's... Right. And that's they, why, right. That's <laughs> the bottom. That's the bottom. If, if we could put a, count, a microphone in all these boardrooms where these committees are having their meetings, and we could hear those words, we could just reliably go out and just put buy as much as stock as we could possibly handle and borrow as much money as they'd lend us. Because that would be guaranteed when they start reducing their equity portion portfolio allocations that that's the sign you're looking for but unfortunately it doesn't get reported i don't think right away it's such a lag so yeah yeah but we're not at that point yet where we have to worry about trying to time the bottom yet we still have to get the uh the bear market to go into its final stage Elliot, for those who want to track more of your thoughts and more of your work where would you point them to so i'm on twitter at h-m-a-c-b-e kind of a it's not a good it's not as good as handle as lead leg but that, you know, i have to get a better handle but yeah, and I, I we every week I write weekend notes, which you can you can subscribe to them by going to our website, MacbethMcCloudPartners.com, or you could just find it on the on Twitter, and uh, click on the link and then sign up there, and I'd be happy to send it directly to you by email. So uh, it is free. So whatever you want to do, uh, and you can direct, uh, my messages are open. You can direct message me on Twitter as well. So again, everybody, please make sure you follow Hillier here on X. I will have this as an edited podcast probably in a couple of days here. 
And hopefully I'll see you all on Lead Lag Live on Spaces tomorrow and the day after. Uh, three more shows coming up. Thank you, Elliot. Really, I love the perspective. And I think it's important for people to hear somebody who's been in the game for a while. Too many. Yeah, yeah I always go back to that great. I forget who exactly said something along the lines of, you know, I'm not young enough to know everything. <laughs> so I think I'll have yeah. Oscar Wilde, right? So I, think was, I think the thing is, if you're in a bull market, you want to hire a, a, an 18 year old because he doesn't have any scar tissue. He can just yeah. go ahead and buy her. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they tend to do and they have the best up capture. <laughs> Age and up capture, down capture are, are connected. So, anyway, thank you everybody for joining. Thank you, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on your show, Michael. It's great. Cheers, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.